The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narconon Ojai. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I will be your host for today. And today, we will be interviewing Ed Cressy. Ed is a writer, speaker, and volunteer whose work serves addicts and people with criminal histories. He lives in San Francisco. He himself is also a former addict. So let's talk to Ed. Ed, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate you sharing your story with us. Thank, thank you, Joni. It's so wonderful what you're doing. There are uh, so many people, unfortunately, who need help. and You're bringing such a valuable resource. There's many, many stories out there. The more stories people hear, the more these details will resonate with persons who need help. Uh, it's a wonderful thing you're doing, and I'm very grateful to be a part of it today. Thank you. Well, thank you. And that's what we think. We think that everybody's story is a little bit different. And with as many people listening or that we think are listening because of the downloads, every, you know, every story is going to resonate with someone. And so there you go. I think it's good. So, so take, take me back to the beginning. How did you get started down the path of drugs and methamphetamines is where I think you ended up. I did. I ended up the, the final 11 years of my addiction devastating years of being addicted to methamphetamine. To answer your question, I think if, if there's one thing from my perspective that's important for people to understand about addiction, it's that usually for us, drugs are not the problem. Drugs are usually our attempt at a solution. That was certainly true for me. Um, my childhood was idyllic in many ways. I grew up in small town Massachusetts. What ended up happening when I was a teenager, I was just kind of a weird kid in school. I was very uncoordinated. I couldn't compete in gym class or on the sports team. I loved to read. I would come home from the library with these big stacks of books because I just loved to escape into fantasy worlds. I was also a very sensitive kid. I would cry quite easily when the teachers yelled or when the kids uh, were too rowdy on the school bus. So where I went to high school, Reading, crying, and being uncoordinated, that was not exactly a campaign platform upon which one might run for class president, you know? Not a, not a good combination when you're a teenager. No. <laughs> Especially when you're a guy. <laughs> Especially when you're a guy. And right. uh, Joni, for, for me, the, the first thing I really felt good at was drinking. You know, mm. when I got drunk 14 years old, the first time, man, here's something I can feel like I can be a part of my surroundings. I can relate to other people. All those problems of being ostracized, of feeling bullied, of, of feeling like an outcast, all those problems, now all of a sudden, I got a solution. My solution was drinking. Wow. It worked for many yeah. years. Yeah, I can see how that would be. Mm -hmm. So what I, happened then? I, when I was uh, 16 years old, I went to San Francisco for a summer to stay with my uncle and his family there. They, they took me in. Uh, that's when my drinking really took off. I became a heavy drinker at age 16. After that summer, I came back to Massachusetts, but now no more could the small town contain me, or so I thought. You know, I wanted nothing more to do with the small town once I'd had that taste of freedom that drinking was such an important part of. I uh, had done well on the standardized test somehow, and uh, I was able to leave high school a year, a year early, start attending college. College is where I began to start lying to people. I would make up these stories about how I'd been a football player in high school and 
how I'd won all these fist fights, and I, because I hated myself, Tony. Right. right. I, I just, that, that I was always through much of my adult life that that little kid afraid to stand up to the schoolyard bullies. I was that ostracized, outcast kid. So I used uh, drinking and then later heavy drug use to, to, I didn't even like being high because I would get so high that I would, uh, I couldn't talk to people. I couldn't relate to others. I just loved that feeling of being a person who knew how to get high. Mm. It was that culture of drugs. I, I knew who to call to. I knew the code, what language to use. I could be the person with a little baggie or bindle in my pocket who said, yeah, come over here to the side room of the party. I just love that persona that drugs gave me. Uh, unfortunately, I used uh, a lot of drugs. I got into marijuana, cocaine, ecstasy, really anything to make me a different person. I, I didn't want to be a high version of myself. I wanted to do enough drugs to become a totally different person. Mm -hmm. And as we know, there aren't enough drugs in the world to change into someone different, but That's we right. can destroy the old person, which is definitely what I attempted to do. Um, I had, I had a lot of opportunities in life. Many of us who, who undergo addiction and alcoholism, we can achieve well in life. Many of us have talents and abilities. Uh, that was true to me. That was true of me to some extent. I think what was also true is I was really given a lot in life. I was provided with a college education and uh, all the money really that I needed. Not millions and millions of dollars, but I didn't want for very much through the course of my life. Um, so I was able to achieve a lot of goals. I was able to get a biotech career. I was able to own, own a home in San Francisco. I, would, I rode a motorcycle. I became uh, an amateur kickboxer. I, I took kickboxing up as a hobby. I, I got so good at kickboxing, I like to say, I could repeatedly strike my opponent's fist with any part of my own face. Okay, that, that. <laughs> so I wasn't... I had to get that concept. I got that concept. Now I understand. <laughs> right. So I wasn't necessarily that good in the ring, but I, I would apply myself to these different things. Uh, however, drugs were always number one. They, they were not, drugs were not the only thing I cared about, but they were always number one. They were always first. If, uh, if it was 3 p.m. and I was at the office and I didn't have a joint waiting for me at home, everything else went to the side and, until I could score that joint. Um, if, if it was Friday morning and I didn't have a 16th of meth or an eight ball for the weekend, everything else got put to the side until I got my drugs. Um, wow. And what happened was uh, I discovered methamphetamine. I, I discovered it in college, but started using it regularly in 1996. I, uh, I, very soon afterwards, everything else started to go. My, my significant other, the relationship I was in, I, I I let that go in favor of base, uh, superficial relationships. I quit my job, got another job, and left that job. My life really began to seesaw. I would have, uh, the, on one side, I would have the meth that I was using every weekend. On the other side, I would have these things, the career, the, the home that I own, my dog, my, uh, my motorcycle, my relationships. All these things are important. There's nothing wrong with any of them. But what I discovered is they were not of a lasting value because they never made me into the into a different person. Like I was saying, even even though I had this house, this career, this motorcycle, I was still always that bullied kid. I was still a person who I hated. And meth uh, eventually took over. I started using meth every day in 2000. 
I began to develop psychosis when I started smoking meth in 2003. I began to hear these disembodied voices. Wow. I developed a vast conspiracy theory in which the FBI was trying to pin 9-11 on me or was trying to recruit me for a top secret undercover FBI operative. I would see planes following me, uh, helicopters. I ripped apart my electronics looking for surveillance devices, punched holes in my drywall. I pushed aside everyone who cared about me, everyone who loved me, everyone who tried to help me. The, the, my family and some friends tried to do an intervention. They, what I concluded was they were trying to have me locked up in a, mm -hmm. in a psych ward. I don't know if that's for sure what they were doing. If it was what they were doing, probably, certainly they believed that was what was best for me. Right. And I was taught, looking back now, that if I had never used meth, no one would ever have tried to lock me up in a psych ward, if indeed that was happening. What was right. That? Right. Yeah. So uh, an event. Sorry. I was just going to say, so full-blown psychosis, really. I, I was, to put a label on it. Yeah. Wow. I was, uh, I was terrified. I mean, I tr the thing about psychosis, Joni, is um, we don't think we're hearing voices. We are hearing them. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, we don't, we don't believe there might be a conspiracy. They're as real as you and I are sitting here. That's as real as these FBI conspiracies were for me. I, I just got, I used to carry a loaded pistol in my waistband because I thought people were after me and I needed protection. Uh, I lost everything. I, 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 well, I threw away everything. I threw away my life savings, my, my wonderful dog. Um, I, I, I got clean for a while and got hired by Stanford University. You know, many people consider Stanford one of the top universities in the world. Yeah. I, yeah. I, start, <laughs> I, start, I, I got some great opportunities in life. But, you know, st I started using meth again a couple months after, after working for Stanford and ended up living in a homeless shelter for a couple of nights. I spent uh, about two and a half months in jail. I was, uh, I was one night, I was, one day I was breaking, I'd broken into my relatives' homes, the same relatives who took me in when I was 16 years old for that one summer. I broke into their home, stole a, a valuable, uh, almost a fairly family heirloom. I sold it for meth money, you know, like 40 bucks or whatever. I, I had enough meth to get me through the night. I went back, tried to break into my family's home again. The, the police arrested me. They ended up stripping me naked and putting me in a padded cell for 24 hours for, for my own protection. Right. They did this. The, the point is, from a person, for your listeners who, who see a beloved family member, a beloved friend who, who has so many opportunities in life, it, it's such an insidious condition, addiction and alcoholism. I, I hope your listeners understand you're not alone. Right. You're definitely not alone. I, I put my family and friends through. One of your guests, Joni, I, I think, I forget who exactly it was, um, put it very well. And he was saying that your guest was saying the family suffers as much, maybe even more so than the addicted person and the addict or the alcoholic herself or himself. And certainly that was probably true in my relationships. I think that's true because I think that the addict, uh, not necessarily totally correctly, feels in control of the addiction. And the family and friends definitely don't feel in control and feel very much the effect and don't know what to do. And the addict, he knows exactly what to do. Go get the next fix and get high. That's what, that's what you do. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that that's rational and a correct way to look at it, but I think the friends and family, they don't know what to do. Addict knows what to do. Just get high again. Absolutely. You know, my, 
my friends, it's so true. My, my friends and family, they wanted to help me. Yet it was as if I, if I had gone to my family with, uh, with a damaged valve in my heart, and I'd said to my family, hey, can you perform open heart surgery on me to, to heal my heart? My, my family would want to help me. But right. if they tried to perform surgery on me, it would be, you know, the, the results obviously would be a disaster. For me as an addict, it was quite similar. My, my family wanted to help me, but the tools they had just weren't what I needed. The, the tools, it was, it would, as, as if I'd asked them to perform surgery on me those times, those few times when I did reach out for help. The, uh, the other very, uh, the other thing I liked, Joni, that you said was uh, related to control. I think of that, uh, and I also think of comfort and how much addiction is a condition of comfort for me or was. I, I knew I could survive from day to day, even in a miserable, unhappy, terrible existence. I knew I could survive that psychosis. I knew I could survive the FBI conspiracy I thought was out there. I, I knew I could get to the end of the day alive. When it came to quitting drugs, leading a sober life, pursuing my dreams, following a, a spiritual path, which I ended up undertaking later. I, I had no idea. I had no belief that I could do those things. Right. I, I was still that bullied kid with no confidence in myself. So I just got so comfortable in that culture and that condition of addiction. It was very hard to get out of. Interesting. So for you, Ed, you've now stolen from your family. You've been arrested, put in a padded cell. What was your point of no return? What was the point in your life when you realized you had to change? You had to get clean. When was that? What happened? There, there were no, I think of it. I was thinking of this question. <laughs> I think it was more like a galaxy of me. Like you look at each star as being a point, and there were that many points. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think the one final. It was in 2007. I was living in a flop house hotel uh, above a strip club in uh, in San Francisco. I hadn't showered or brushed my teeth in months. My flop house room had a little sink in the corner where I would ash my cigarettes and urinate and wash my clothes. You know, th this was my existence. I um, I had no light. My cashed in all my savings. I was nowhere near employable. You are listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story to tell, go to our Facebook page by the same name or email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com or call us at 727-314-7080. For more information on our sponsor, Narconon Ojai, visit their website at narcononojai.org. That's N-A-R-C-O-N-O-N-O-J-A-I.org. Or call 866-231-5924. That's 866-231-5924. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years' experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 833-918-0008 
today and say the word podcast and get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. Once again, 833-918-0008 or newmaninterventions.com. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. Things were, I had no hope anymore of things getting better. I could hope for things not to get worse. I could hope that the next day I wouldn't get arrested or I could hope I wouldn't get sick or, but, but I had no real hope of things getting better. Wow. My, uh, my landlord was evicting me. And I remember I was out sweeping the sidewalks because a lot of people would, would party at the strip clubs and the next day the sidewalks. would. So I was out there sweeping sidewalks, hoping that when I swept my way to the corner, I would get a free cup of coffee from the cafe owner. And, and that was my life. And, and that was the only place I, I was going. Uh, I, 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 that was the best I could really hope for. I, did, wow. I remember to my left, there was this uh, Broadway tunnel. It's, uh, it's a roadway through San Francisco, and there's this big, black, gaping hole of a tunnel. To my right was the, the San, San Francisco Bay, which, you know, the, the waves, the, the sun kind of sparkled off the waves like little diamonds out there. And it was just, you know, I could look, go left into that dark, gaping tunnel, or I could go right. Um, I got to a point where a lot of us get, which was that I could either get locked up, I could get covered up, like six feet of earth covered up. Right or I could get sobered up. Th- those are my only options. Yep. Fortunately, I chose getting sobered up. Uh, for your listeners, I-, I would say, you know, you don't, you definitely don't have to wait till you get to the point that I got to. I, I look back and I see there-, there were so many times I told myself I would never do something. I told myself I would never uh, shoot. I-, I would never use needles. And I ended mm-hmm. up using a needle. I told myself I would never do heroin and I ended up smoking heroin. I told myself I would never spend a night in a homeless shelter and I ended up spending a night in a homeless shelter. There, there were all these, looking back, I see there were all these little landmarks, mm-hmm. things I said I would never do, levels I said I would never let myself sink to. It actually happened. When I say my point was more like a, a galaxy or, or a, a, you know, a universe of little points, I can look back and see many, many times where I could have said, hey, I said I was never going to get in this position. Here I am. And for your listeners, you don't have to end up sweeping a sidewalk in front of a flophouse hotel, not having showered for months. You can interrupt this cycle much earlier, and I hope you do. Right, right. So how did you get clean? The 12 steps really saved my life. I did a lot of 12-step work uh, for the first six or so years that I was clean. Really, what the 12 steps taught me was to search for spirituality. Spirituality became the, the number one most important thing in my, in my recovery and in my life. There's a, a quote I love to use. It's from George Harrison of the Beatles. Remember George Harrison? Oh, yeah. <laughs> he said, I'm going to paraphrase him a little bit, but uh, George Harrison said, everything can wait except a search for spiritual meaning. Interesting. Yeah, I love that. Because George yeah. Harrison the Beatles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, considered by many to be one of the greatest rock and roll bands of all time. And Harrison is saying even the heights of rock and roll stardom can wait. Yep. But that search for spiritual meaning, that can't wait. Yeah. When I keep that, it's, it's hard to do for me to keep that at the forefront. But when I do, that can get me through a lot of really tough situations. Um, another thing I like is to think of the Dalai Lama. Mm-hmm. where uh, somebody, uh, The story goes, somebody asked the Dalai Lama, what is the best religion? 
the, the questioner thought the Dalai Lama would say, well, Buddhism, because it's the oldest or something right. like that. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Dalai Lama's response, the Dalai Lama's response is the best religion is the one that makes the practitioner the best person. Wow. That's yeah. a great quote. Uh, that 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 should be emblazoned on the side of every church almost, you know what I mean? Because so many this is not a religious podcast, but so many horrible things happen, quote unquote, in the name of religion. And there can be so much bigotry connected to religion. So I like that. Say it again. The, the, according to the Dalai Lama, as I understand it, the best religion, and I take that to mean the best form of spirituality, right. is the one that makes the practitioner the best person. That's the most compassionate, yeah, the most that's grateful. Awesome. Isn't it awesome? Yeah, that, that, that works. That works for me. I like that. So you got clean, and then where did life's path take you after that? The, the methamphetamine psychosis got much better as soon as I quit meth. Yet I continued to experience a form of schizophrenia, which, you know, even to this day, episodes of schizophrenia, they, they come and go. Okay. What um, I, I, my personal choice was never to use medication. It, instead, I, I practiced meditation, spirituality. And so I'm so fortunate, Joni, that many incredible people through the course of my life, through the course of my recovery, especially, inspired me and believed in me saw things in me that I could not see in myself. The best help I received through the course of my recovery came from empathetic individuals. Wow. I mean, I could just go on from so many walks of life, uh, formerly incarcerated persons, law enforcement persons, nonprofit, uh, business executives, politicians, uh, an incredible amount of people from so many different walks of life believed in me. They, uh, they convinced, they instilled in me a belief that if I was going to help myself, I really needed to help others. Good so point. I felt, yeah, it's, it was great. I, I became a volunteer. I was a volunteer first responder in the city of San Francisco. I would volunteer for the Boys and Girls Clubs as a coach. I, along the way, I'd become a self-defense instructor. So I taught these little kids some basic self-defense stuff. It was great. I love it. <laughs> yeah, anywhere, you know, anywhere I could have a soup kitchen here and there, anywhere I saw an opportunity to be of service, I would take that opportunity. All along, I'm, I'm still uh, gripped with paranoid fears about the FBI. From, from time to time, I would get deeply immersed in this paranoia that the FBI was coming to get me. They were gonna kick down my door pin 9-11 on me, who knows what, but I, I, all through the course of my recovery until, incredibly enough, I became a volunteer for the FBI. <laughs> I read that. <laughs> That's one way to confront your fears, okay? It was so important. You, you, you hit the nail right on the head, Joni, because confronting my fears all through the course of my recovery, as I'm volunteering, that, that was the other part that I became a public speaker. To, I, while I participated in Toastmasters, which is the public speaking organization, I became I uh, I went to companies such as Google and LinkedIn and Cisco and uh, even MIT University brought me in as a speaker. So th these organizations, in addition to the people that I mentioned, just had so much faith in me and instilled so much belief. It, it, I could believe in myself after so long that facing my fears that got me to the point where I, I trained an FBI SWAT team in unarmed self-defense. The very people I was so afraid were going to kick down my door. To SWAT. <laughs> Did you make them promise not to come kick down your door? <laughs> I, I, had my, 
I had to put my faith and trust in them. The, uh, the FBI brought me into, the, they do something called a Citizens Academy, which is like a six, one night a week for six week course that trains uh, civilians in how the FBI operates. It was an awesome course. Most of the people who took it worked in security for tech firms or in the public safety sector. They brought me in because all along I'd been working with formerly incarcerated persons. Okay. I had taken my experience having served uh, two or two and a half months in jail and uh, what I learned from that experience and, and what I learned about how I can give to society. The FBI, they, what I've learned about the FBI is that although they need to do a better job of assisting persons who have served their time, who have paid their debts, who have, uh, who have made mistakes by their own admission and turned their lives around, these people, uh, formerly incarcerated persons such as myself, I believe are one of the greatest resources, untapped resources in our society, along mm-hmm. with formerly addicted people, I think. And in our society, there's such a connection between addiction and incarceration, unfortunately. Unfortunately, there's yeah. such a high percentage of people who are incarcerated. There are, there's drugs and alcoholism and or mental illness in their stories. So, so these human beings represent a vastly untapped resource once we've overcome our addiction, once we've overcome our mental health challenges, once we put our criminal histories behind us, we have a lot to give you as a society. We have I a lot agree. to give you. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I completely uh-huh. agree with you. And that's why, you know, that's why I like having someone like you on the podcast who's gone through a lot of that because the more we can, you know, we can talk about stories like yours, the more we can remove this stigma of addiction or even the stigma of having been incarcerated. You know, obviously there are some people who, you know, are incarcerated for horrific crimes and they won't get out and okay, fine. But there are, I think, a large percentage who, you know, do their time and, you know, are not going to go back down that road. And they have, and they do have a lot to offer in terms of nothing else, just sharing their story as to what happened to them so that maybe young people don't go down that road, you know? So I, I agree with what you're saying. Absolutely. It's, Joni, it's like you're reading my notes that I have, I have next to me. It's big <laughs> <month>. Yes, <laughs> exactly. To, to me, when I became, when I started becoming forthcoming around the, the fact that I still experience a schizophrenia-like condition, I, I realized I had gone, since I quit meth, I had gone, I don't know, 10 years trying to keep that hidden. And I realized that this condition that I'm speaking of, that didn't affect me nearly as much as the fact I tried to keep it hidden. Because exactly what you say, the stigma. When we can remove these stigmas and we can give people a chance who've earned that chance and who have paid their debts and who realize the gravity of their mistakes and who have put forth a a serious effort to change their lives, as many people have and do, then yes, when we can remove that stigma, we, we have a wonderful resource to strengthen our society. I think uh, that's awesome. I think I said you're a writer. Is that correct? Yes, I, I am. I have a, I, all my life I'd wanted to be a writer since I was a little kid. I think uh, a major part of my addiction was the fact that I, I, never, uh, I never had the discipline to actually try to be a writer. It was so much easier to get high and think <laughs> about writing or talk about writing. So I took that easy route. When I got clean, I really applied myself to, to becoming a writer. I had something published in the Washington Post, the San Francisco Chronicle, the Vox website, and I wrote a book, which is being published next April. 
What's the name? We're still working on the title, but I, okay. I think it's going to be called Just Because You're Done With The Drugs Doesn't Mean The Drugs Are Done With You. Good title. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's a memoir of, of, what we, of my experience having become an addict and, and going through recovery. And hopefully, the way so many wonderful people have helped me, my book will do something to help others. Awesome. Well, you have to be sure and let Steve and I know when the book comes out because we will announce it on the podcast and maybe we'll even have you back and you can talk a little bit more about your book. But definitely we will want to tell people about it. I, I love that very much. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Cool. Now, do you do public speaking as well? Are you available for public speaking if people are interested in that? Yes, absolutely. I've done a lot of public speaking. Audiences uh, resonate with my message. Audiences see the value of giving second chances. The audience experience, uh, audiences experience how they can help an addicted person in their lives. They see uh, some of the root causes of addiction. In many ways, uh, many, many of us are addicts. We're addicts to, you know, video games or uh, procrastinating or unhealthy relationships or drugs or, or any number of things. Yeah. So, uh, to answer your question, if, uh, can I give my contact information? Yes, that's what I was going to ask you for. Oh. If, if somebody wants to reach out to you to have you come and speak, that's what I was going to ask for next. Awesome. I, I think the easiest way is to just find me on Facebook. My, my name is, uh, is spelled E-D, Ed Cressy, K-R-E, S-S-Y, and you'll find me on Facebook. I'm wearing the green shirt with a green mountain behind me in the background on my profile picture. Okay, cool. So again, that's Ed Cressy, K-R-E-S-S-Y, on Facebook with a green shirt with a mountain in the background. Yes. So what, you've got your book coming out. What else? Anything else that you've got coming down the pike that we would be excited about? I, uh, so I, one of the most ironic things about my experience with the FBI is in May of this previous year, I was flown to Washington, D.C. to personally meet the director of the FBI. Wow. <laughs> I was so, I was, if you go, Johnny, if we go back 10 years, you know, one of the most unlikely people ever to meet the director of the FBI. <laughs> wow. I was, I was so fortunate and I'm so grateful uh, to, to many people in law enforcement. Uh, the director gave me, he awarded me uh, a community service award. I was one wow. of like seven Americans. They, they recognize people who, um, who educate the public about Muslim culture, who support LGBTQ uh, community initiatives, who support public safety. And I was one of these fortunate people. Um, the, to answer your question, Going forward, I'm doing more work to support incarcerated and formerly incarcerated persons, helping them develop skills for entrepreneurism, employment, personal development. I'm affiliated with two wonderful nonprofits that actually go inside prison and deliver trainings. I Can also you say what those are? I'd love to. Yes, thank yeah. you. One is called uh, Defy Ventures, and they're, uh, they've been around for a while. They, they do a wonderful program for entrepreneurship and employment uh, throughout in various states in the country. Uh, another one, I'm involved in uh, Pelican Bay Volunteer Alliance. We go into Pelican Bay, which is a maximum security prison in California, where uh, a lot of prison gangs are, are a lot of members of prison gangs are incarcerated. We're teaching them skills for employment and entrepreneurism so that they can contribute to society and, uh, and turn their lives around, just like 
many people helped me and others turn our lives around. So these are two, yeah. I was just gonna say, that's awesome. That, that's yeah. very cool. There's so much great work being done out there. And I'm so grateful to play some small role in this and the wonderful efforts that people are making. I like that. You have already given some really, really good messages to our listeners. But the way I like to wrap up these interviews is to ask you if there was one message you would want to give to our listeners, be they addicts or friends and family of addicts, what would that message be? Listen to your podcast. Again, oh, thank you. <laughs> in all seriousness, get as much information as you can. If you listen to a, a, an hour of podcast of your podcast and you get one thing that helps you, that's an hour. You might you you know probably get more than one, but even if you get just one, that will help you. Um, talk to as many people as you can. Understand you're not alone. And I really uh, cannot stress enough the value, at least for me, of a spiritual uh, pursuit of something spiritual. Spiritual, one definition I like is the opposite of the material. So anything of a non-material nature, we consider we can consider it spiritual, whether it's karma, whether it's uh, volunteerism, whether it's maybe some form of organized religion, whatever is right for you as a spiritual practitioner, like the Dalai Lama said, whatever makes you the best person, that's what's right for you. And, and that's, I, I know for myself, uh, a pursuit of spirituality got me through some very, very dark times and continues to do so. So for whatever it's worth, consider uh, adopting a spiritual solution or a spiritual pursuit. I think that is fabulous advice. I mean, really fabulous advice. Ed, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I really, really appreciate you sharing your story. And I know that it's going to resonate with people. So thank you so much. It has been my absolute pleasure, Joni. Thank you so much. It's been great to be here. Awesome. Take care. You too. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Ed Cressy. I think he has a great story. I think he's doing great things to help with the area of addiction and also with people who have been incarcerated. You know, we have to be able to do something with those people that have been incarcerated. I mean, they come back into society and so often they're just really not prepared for that. And I think he's doing a lot of good work there. So thank you so much for listening. Just a reminder to um, be sure and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And please, please, please give us a five-star rating because we want more and more people to find us. And so the better the reviews, the more we'll come up first in the various podcast programs. Thank you so much for listening. I will speak to you again next week. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narcanon Ojai. For more information on Narcanon Ojai, call 866-231-5924 or visit www.narcanonojai.org. Narcanon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard.